This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant. The Discipline of Pure Reason in the Sphere of Dogmatism. The science of mathematics presents the most brilliant example of the extension of the sphere of pure reason without the aid of experience. Examples are always contagious, and they exert an especial influence on the same faculty, which naturally flatters itself that it will have the same good fortune in other case, as fell to its lot in one fortunate instance. Hence pure reason hopes to be able to extend its empire in the transcendental sphere with equal success and security, especially when it applies the same method which was attended with such brilliant results in the science of mathematics. It is therefore of the highest importance for us to know whether the method of arriving at demonstrative certainty, which is termed mathematical, be identical with that by which we endeavor to attain the same degree of certainty in philosophy, and which is termed in that science dogmatical. Philosophical cognition is the cognition of reason by means of conceptions. Mathematical cognition is cognition by means of the construction of conceptions. The construction of a conception is the presentation a priori of the intuition which corresponds to the conception. For this purpose a non-empirical intuition is requisite, which, as an intuition, is an individual object, while, as the construction of a conception, a general representation, it must be seen to be universally valid for all the possible intuitions which rank under that conception. Thus I construct a triangle, by the presentation of the object which corresponds to this conception, either by mere imagination, in pure intuition, or upon paper, in empirical intuition, in both cases completely a priori, without borrowing the type of that figure from any experience. The individual figure drawn upon paper is empirical, but it serves, notwithstanding, to indicate the conception, even in its universality, because in this empirical intuition we keep our eye merely on the act of the construction of the conception, and pay no attention to the various modes of determining it, for example its size, the length of its sides, the size of its angles, these not in the least affecting the essential character of the conception. Philosophical cognition, accordingly, regards the particular only in the general, mathematical the general in the particular, nay, in the individual. This is done, however, entirely a priori, and by means of pure reason, so that, as this individual figure is determined under certain universal conditions of construction, the object of the conception to which this individual figure corresponds as its schema must be cogitated as universally determined. The essential difference of these two modes of cognition consists, therefore, in this formal quality. It does not regard the difference of the matter or objects of both. Those thinkers who aim at distinguishing philosophy from mathematics, by asserting that the former has to do with quality merely, and the latter with quantity, have mistaken the effect for the cause. The reason why mathematical cognition can relate only to quantity is to be found in its form alone for it is the conception of quantities only that is capable of being constructed, that is, presented a priori in intuition, while qualities cannot be given in any other than an empirical intuition. 
Hence the cognition of qualities by reason is possible only through conceptions. No one can find an intuition which shall correspond to the conception of reality, except in experience. It cannot be presented to the mind a priori, and antecedently to the empirical consciousness of a reality. We can form an intuition by means of the mere conception of it, of a cone without the aid of experience, but the color of the cone we cannot know except from experience. I cannot present an intuition of a cause, except in an example which experience offers to me. Besides, philosophy as well as mathematics treats of quantities, as, for example, of totality, infinity, and so on. Mathematics, too, treats of the difference of lines and surfaces, as spaces of different quality, of the continuity of extension, as a quality thereof. But although in such cases they have a common object, the mode in which reason considers that object is very different in philosophy from what it is in mathematics. The former confines itself to the general conceptions. The latter can do nothing with the mere conception. It hastens to intuition. In this intuition it regards the conception in concreto, not empirically, but in an a priori intuition, which it has constructed, and in which all the results which follow from the general conditions of the construction of the conception are in all cases valid for the object of the constructed conception. Suppose that the conception of a triangle is given to a philosopher, and that he is required to discover by the philosophical method what relation the sum of its angles bears to a right angle. He has nothing before him but the conception of a figure enclosed within three right lines, and consequently with the same number of angles. He may analyze the conception of a right line, or of the number three as long as he pleases, but he will not discover any properties not contained in these conceptions. But if this question is proposed to a geometrician, he at once begins by constructing a triangle. He knows that two right angles are equal to the sum of all the contiguous angles which proceed from one point in a straight line, and he goes on to produce one side of his triangle, thus forming two adjacent angles which are together equal to two right angles. He then divides the exterior of these angles by drawing a line parallel with the opposite side of the triangle, and immediately perceives that he has thus got an exterior adjacent angle which is equal to the interior. Proceeding in this way, through a chain of inferences, and always on the ground of intuition, he arrives at a clear and universally valid solution of the question. But mathematics does not confine itself to the construction of quantities, quanta, as in the case of geometry. It occupies itself with pure quantity also, quantitas, as in the case of algebra where complete abstraction is made of the properties of the object indicated by the conception of quantity. In algebra a certain method of notation by signs is adopted, and these indicate the different possible constructions of quantities, the extraction of roots, and so on. After having thus denoted the general conception of quantities, according to their different relations, the different operations by which quantity or number is increased or diminished are presented in intuition in accordance with general rules. Thus, when one quantity is to be divided by another, the signs which denote both are placed in the form peculiar to the operation of division. And thus algebra, by means of a symbolical construction of quantity, just as geometry, with its ostensive or geometrical construction, 
a construction of the objects themselves, arrives at results which discursive cognition cannot hope to reach by the aid of mere conceptions. Now what is the cause of this difference in the fortune of the philosopher and the mathematician, the former of whom follows the path of conceptions, while the latter pursues that of intuitions, which he represents a priori in correspondence with his conceptions? The cause is evident from what has been already demonstrated in the introduction to this critique. We do not, in the present case, want to discover analytical propositions, which may be produced merely by analyzing our conceptions, for in this the philosopher would have the advantage over his rival. We aim at the discovery of synthetical propositions, such synthetical propositions, moreover, as can be cognized a priori. I must not confine myself to that which I actually cogitate in my conception of a triangle, for this is nothing more than the mere definition. I must try to go beyond that, and to arrive at properties which are not contained in, although they belong to, the conception. Now this is impossible unless I determine the object present to my mind according to the conditions either of empirical or of pure intuition. In the former case I should have an empirical proposition, arrived at by actual measurement of the angles of the triangle, which would possess neither universality nor necessity, but that would be of no value. In the latter I proceed by geometrical construction, by means of which I collect in a pure intuition, just as I would in an empirical intuition, all the various properties which belong to the schema of a triangle in general, and consequently to its conception, and thus construct synthetical propositions which possess the attribute of universality. It would be vain to philosophize upon the triangle, that is, to reflect on it discursively. I should get no further than the definition with which I had been obliged to set out. There are certainly transcendental synthetical propositions which are framed by means of pure conceptions, and which form the peculiar distinction of philosophy, but these do not relate to any particular thing, but to a thing in general, and announce the conditions under which the perception of it may become a part of possible existence. But the science of mathematics has nothing to do with such questions, nor with the question of existence in any fashion. It is concerned merely with the properties of objects in themselves, only in so far as these are connected with the conception of the objects. In the above example we merely attempted to show the great difference which exists between the discursive employment of reason in the sphere of conceptions and its intuitive exercise by means of the construction of conceptions. The question naturally arises, what is the cause which necessitates this twofold exercise of reason, and how are we to discover whether it is the philosophical or the mathematical method which reason is pursuing in an argument? All our knowledge relates, finally, to possible intuitions, for it is these alone that present objects to the mind. An a priori or non-empirical conception contains either a pure intuition, and in this case it can be constructed, or it contains nothing but the synthesis of possible intuitions, which are not given a priori. In this latter case it may help us to form synthetical a priori judgments, but only in the discursive method, by conceptions, not in the intuitive, by means of the construction of conceptions. The only a priori intuition is that of the pure form of phenomena, space and time, 
a conception of space and time as quanta may be presented a priori in intuition that is constructed either alone with their quality figure or as pure quantity the mere synthesis of the homogeneous by means of number but the matter of phenomena by which things are given in space and time can be presented only in perception a posteriori the only conception which represents a priori this empirical content of phenomena is the conception of a thing in general and the a priori synthetical cognition of this conception can give us nothing more than the rule for the synthesis of that which may be contained in the corresponding a posteriori perception it is utterly inadequate to present an a priori intuition of the real object which must necessarily be empirical synthetical propositions which relate to things in general an a priori intuition of which is impossible are transcendental for this reason transcendental propositions cannot be framed by means of the construction of conceptions they are a priori and based entirely on conceptions themselves they contain merely the rule by which we are to seek in the world of perception or experience the synthetical unity of that which cannot be intuited a priori but they are incompetent to present any of the conceptions which appear in them in an a priori intuition these can be given only a posteriori in experience which however is itself possible only through these synthetical principles if we are to form a synthetical judgment regarding a conception we must go beyond it to the intuition in which it is given if we keep to what is contained in the conception the judgment is merely analytical it is merely an explanation of what we have cogitated in the conception but i can pass from the conception to the pure or empirical intuition which corresponds to it i can proceed to examine my conception in concreto and to cognize either a priori or a posteriori what i find in the object of the conception the former a priori cognition is rational mathematical cognition by means of the construction of the conception the latter a posteriori cognition is purely empirical cognition which does not possess the attributes of necessity and universality thus i may analyze the conception i have of gold but i gain no new information from this analysis i merely enumerate the different properties which i had connected with the notion indicated by the word my knowledge has gained in logical clearness and arrangement but no addition has been made to it but if i take the matter which is indicated by this name and submit it to the examination of my senses i am enabled to form several synthetical although still empirical propositions the mathematical conception of a triangle i should construct that is present a priori in intuition and in this way attain to rational synthetical cognition but when the transcendental conception of reality or substance or power is presented to my mind i find that it does not relate to or indicate either an empirical or pure intuition but that it indicates merely the synthesis of empirical intuitions which cannot of course be given a priori the synthesis in such a conception cannot proceed a priori without the aid of experience to the intuition which corresponds to the conception and for this reason none of these conceptions can produce a determinative synthetical proposition 
they can never present more than a principle of the synthesis of possible empirical intuitions note seventy five in the case of the conception of cause i do really go beyond the empirical conception of an event but not to the intuition which presents this conception in concreto but only to the time conditions which may be found in experience to correspond to the conception my procedure is therefore strictly according to conceptions i cannot in a case of this kind employ the construction of conceptions because the conception is merely a rule for the synthesis of perceptions which are not pure intuitions and which therefore cannot be given a priori End of note seventy five a transcendental proposition is therefore a synthetical cognition of reason by means of pure conceptions and the discursive method and it renders possible all synthetical unity in empirical cognition though it cannot present us with any intuition a priori there is thus a twofold exercise of reason both modes have the properties of universality and an a priori origin in common but are in their procedure of widely different character the reason of this is that in the world of phenomena in which alone objects are presented to our minds there are two main elements the form of intuition space and time which can be cognized and determined completely a priori and the matter of content that which is presented in space and time and which consequently contains a something an existence corresponding to our powers of sensation as regards the latter which can never be given in a determinate mode except by experience there are no a priori notions which relate to it except the undetermined conceptions of the synthesis of possible sensations in so far as these belong in a possible experience to the unity of consciousness as regards the former we can determine our conceptions a priori in intuition inasmuch we are ourselves the creators of the objects of the conceptions in space and time these objects being regarded simply as quanta in the one case reason proceeds according to conceptions and can do nothing more than subject phenomena to these which can only be determined empirically that is a posteriori in conformity however with those conceptions as the rules of all empirical synthesis in the other case reason proceeds by the construction of conceptions and as these conceptions relate to an a priori intuition they may be given and determined in pure intuition a priori and without the aid of empirical data the examination and consideration of everything that exists in space or time whether it is a quantum or not in how far the particular something which fills space or time is a primary substratum or a mere determination of some other existence whether it relates to anything else either as cause or effect whether its existence is isolated or in reciprocal connection with and dependence upon others the possibility of this existence its reality and necessity or opposites all these form part of the cognition of reason on the ground of conceptions and this cognition is termed philosophical but to determine a priori an intuition in space its figure to divide time into periods or merely to cognize the quantity of an intuition in space and time and to determine it by number all this is an operation of reason by means of the construction of conceptions and is called mathematical 
The success which attends the efforts of reason in the sphere of mathematics naturally fosters the expectation that the same good fortune will be its lot, if it applies the mathematical method in other regions of mental endeavor besides that of quantities. Its success is thus great, because it can support all its conceptions by a priori intuitions, and in this way make itself a master, as it were, over nature while pure philosophy with its a priori discursive conceptions bungles about in the world of nature and cannot accredit or show any a priori evidence of the reality of these conceptions masters in the science of mathematics are confident of the success of this method indeed it is a common persuasion that it is capable of being applied to any subject of human thought they have hardly ever reflected or philosophized on their favorite science, a task of great difficulty, and the specific difference between the two modes of employing the faculty of reason has never entered their thoughts. Rules current in the field of common experience, and which common sense stamps everywhere with its approval, are regarded by them as axiomatic. From what source the conceptions of space and time, with which, as the only primitive quanta they have to deal, enter their minds is a question which they do not trouble themselves to answer and they think it just as unnecessary to examine into the origin of the pure conceptions of the understanding and the extent of their validity all they have to do with them is to employ them in all this they are perfectly right if they do not overstep the limits of the sphere of nature but they pass unconsciously from the world of sense to the insecure ground of pure transcendental conceptions instabilis tellus inabilis unda where they can neither stand nor swim and where the tracks of their footsteps are obliterated by time while the march of mathematics is pursued on a broad and magnificent highway which the latest posterity shall frequent without fear of danger or impediment as we have taken upon us the task of determining clearly and certainly the limits of pure reason in the sphere of transcendentalism and as the efforts of reason in this direction are persisted in even after the plainest and most expressive warnings hope still beckoning us past the limits of experience into the splendors of the intellectual world it becomes necessary to cut away the last anchor of this fallacious and fantastic hope we shall accordingly show that the mathematical method is unattended in the sphere of philosophy by the least advantage except perhaps that it more plainly exhibits its own inadequacy that geometry and philosophy are two quite different things although they go hand in hand in the field of natural science and consequently that the procedure of the one can never be imitated by the other the evidence of mathematics rests upon definitions axioms and demonstrations i shall be satisfied with showing that none of these forms can be employed or imitated in philosophy in the sense in which they are understood by mathematicians and that the geometrician if he employs his method in philosophy will succeed only in building card castles while the employment of the philosophical method in mathematics can result in nothing but mere verbiage the essential business of philosophy, indeed, is to mark out the limits of the science, and even the mathematician, unless his talent is naturally circumscribed and limited to this particular department of knowledge, cannot turn a deaf ear to the warnings of philosophy, or set himself above its direction. 1. Of Definitions 
a definition is as the term itself indicates the representation upon primary grounds of the complete conception of a thing within its own limits note seventy six the definition must describe the conception completely that is omit none of the marks or signs of which it composed within its own limits that is it must be precise and enumerate no more signs than belong to the conception and on primary grounds that is to say the limitations of the bounds of the conception must not be deduced from other conceptions as in this case a proof would be necessary and the so-called definition would be incapable of taking its place at the head of all the judgments we have to form regarding an object end of note seventy six accordingly an empirical conception cannot be defined it can only be explained for as there are in such a conception only a certain number of marks or signs which denote a certain class of sensuous objects we can never be sure that we do not cogitate under the word which indicates the same object at one time a greater at another a smaller number of signs thus one person may cogitate in his conception of gold in addition to its properties of weight color malleability that of resisting rust while another person may be ignorant of this quality we employ certain signs only so long as we require them for the sake of distinction new observations abstract some and add new ones so that an empirical conception never remains within permanent limits it is in fact useless to define a conception of this kind if for example we are speaking of water and its properties we do not stop at what we actually think by the word water but proceed to observation and experiment and the word with the few signs attached to it is more properly a designation than a conception of the thing a definition in this case would evidently be nothing more than a determination of the word in the second place no a priori conception such as those of substance cause right fitness and so on can be defined for i can never be sure that the clear representation of a given conception which is given in a confused state has been fully developed until i know that the representation is adequate with its object but inasmuch as the conception as it is presented to the mind may contain a number of obscure representations which we do not observe in our analysis although we employ them in our application of the conception i can never be sure that my analysis is complete while examples may make this probable although they can never demonstrate the fact instead of the word definition i should rather employ the term exposition a more modest expression which the critic may accept without surrendering his doubts as to the completeness of the analysis of any such conception as therefore neither empirical nor a priori conceptions are capable of definition we have to see whether the only other kind of conceptions arbitrary conceptions can be subjected to this mental operation such a conception can always be defined for i must know thoroughly what i wish to cogitate in it as it was i who created it and it was not given to my mind either by the nature of my understanding or by experience at the same time i cannot say that by such a definition i have defined a real object if the conception is based upon empirical conditions if for example i have a conception of a clock for a ship this arbitrary conception does not assure me of the existence or even of the possibility of the object 
my definition of such a conception would with more propriety be termed a declaration of a project than a definition of an object there are no other conceptions which can bear definition except those which contain an arbitrary synthesis which can be constructed a priori consequently the science of mathematics alone possesses definitions for the object here thought is presented a priori in intuition and thus it can never contain more or less than the conception because the conception of the object has been given by the definition and primarily that is without deriving the definition from any other source philosophical definitions are therefore merely expositions of given conceptions while mathematical definitions are constructions of conceptions originally formed by the mind itself the former are produced by analysis the completeness of which is never demonstratively certain the latter by a synthesis in a mathematical definition the conception is formed in a philosophical definition it is only explained from this it follows a that we must not imitate in philosophy the mathematical usage of commencing with definitions except by way of hypothesis or experiment for as all so-called philosophical definitions are merely analyses of given conceptions these conceptions although only in a confused form must precede the analysis and the incomplete exposition must precede the complete so that we may be able to draw certain inferences from the characteristics which an incomplete analysis has enabled us to discover before we attain to the complete exposition or definition of the conception in one word a full and clear definition ought in philosophy rather to form the conclusion than the commencement of our labors note seventy seven philosophy abounds in faulty definitions especially such as contain some of the elements requisite to form a complete definition if a conception could not be employed in reasoning before it had been defined it would fare ill with all philosophical thought but as incompletely defined conceptions may always be employed without detriment to truth so far as our analysis of the elements contained in them proceeds imperfect definitions that is propositions which are properly not definitions but merely approximations thereto may be used with great advantage in mathematics definition belongs ad esse in philosophy ad melius esse it is a difficult task to construct a proper definition jurists are still without a complete definition of the idea of right End of note 77 in mathematics on the contrary we cannot have a conception prior to the definition it is the definition which gives us the conception and it must for this reason form the commencement of every chain of mathematical reasoning b mathematical definitions cannot be erroneous for the conception is given only in and through the definition and thus it contains only what has been cogitated in the definition but although a definition cannot be incorrect as regards its content an error may sometimes although seldom creep into the form this error consists in a want of precision thus the common definition of a circle that it is a curved line every point in which is equally distant from another point called the center is faulty from the fact that the determination indicated by the word curved is superfluous for there ought to be a particular theorem which may be easily proved from the definition 
to the effect that every line to the effect that every line which has all its points at equal distances from another point must be a curved line that is that not even the smallest part of it can be straight analytical definitions on the other hand may be erroneous in many respects either by the introduction of signs which do not actually exist in the conception or by wanting in that completeness which forms the essential of a definition in the latter case the definition is necessarily defective because we can never be fully certain of the completeness of our analysis for these reasons the method of definition employed in mathematics cannot be imitated in philosophy two of axioms these in so far as they are immediately certain are a priori synthetical principles now one conception cannot be connected synthetically and yet immediately with another because if we wish to proceed out of and beyond a conception a third mediating cognition is necessary and as philosophy is a cognition of reason by the aid of conceptions alone there is to be found in it no principle which deserves to be called an axiom mathematics on the other hand may possess axioms because it can always connect the predicates of an object a priori and without any mediating term by means of the construction of conceptions in intuition such is the case with the proposition three points can always lie in a plane on the other hand no synthetical principle which is based upon conceptions can ever be immediately certain for example the proposition everything that happens has a cause because i require a mediating term to connect the two conceptions of event and cause namely the condition of time determination in an experience and i cannot cognize any such principle immediately and from conceptions alone discursive principles are accordingly very different from intuitive principles or axioms the former always require deduction which in the case of the latter may be altogether dispensed with axioms are for this reason always self-evident while philosophical principles whatever may be the degree of certainty they possess cannot lay any claim to such a distinction no synthetical proposition of pure transcendental reason can be so evident as is often rashly enough declared as the statement twice two are four it is true that in the analytic i introduced into the list of principles of the pure understanding certain axioms of intuition but the principle there discussed was not itself an axiom but served merely to present the principle of the possibility of axioms in general while it was really nothing more than a principle based upon conceptions for it is one part of the duty of transcendental philosophy to establish the possibility of mathematics itself philosophy possesses then no axioms and has no right to impose its a priori principles upon thought until it has established their authority and validity by a thoroughgoing deduction three of demonstrations only an apodictic proof based upon intuition can be termed a demonstration experience teaches us what is but it cannot convince us that it might not have been otherwise hence a proof upon empirical grounds cannot be apodictic a priori conceptions in discursive cognition can never produce intuitive certainty or evidence however certain the judgment they present may be mathematics alone therefore contains demonstrations because it does not deduce its cognition from conceptions 
but from the construction of conceptions, that is, from intuition, which can be given a priori in accordance with conceptions, the method of algebra in equations, from which the correct answer is deduced by reduction, is a kind of construction, not geometrical, but by symbols, in which all conceptions, especially those of the relations of quantities, are represented in intuition by signs, and thus the conclusions in that science are secured from errors by the fact that every proof is submitted to ocular evidence. Philosophical cognition does not possess this advantage, it being required to consider the general always in abstracto, by means of conceptions, while mathematics can always consider it in concreto, in an individual intuition, and at the same time by means of an a priori representation, whereby all errors are rendered manifest to the senses. The former discursive proofs ought to be termed acroamatic proofs, rather than demonstrations, as only words are employed in them, while demonstrations proper, as the term itself indicates, always require a reference to the intuition of the object. It follows from all these considerations that it is not consonant with the nature of philosophy, especially in the sphere of pure reason, to employ the dogmatical method, and to adorn itself with the titles and insignia of mathematical science. It does not belong to that order, and can only hope for a fraternal union with that science. Its attempts at mathematical evidence are vain pretensions, which can only keep it back from its true aim, which is to detect the illusory procedure of reason when transgressing its proper limits, and by fully explaining and analyzing our conceptions, to conduct us from the dim regions of speculation to the clear region of modest self-knowledge. Reason must not, therefore, in its transcendental endeavors, look forward with such confidence, as if the path it is pursuing led straight to its aim, nor reckon with such security upon its premises, as to consider it unnecessary to take a step back, or to keep a strict watch for errors, which, overlooked in the principles, may be detected in the arguments themselves, in which case it may be requisite either to determine these principles with greater strictness, or to change them entirely. I divide all apodictic propositions, whether demonstrable or immediately certain, into dogmata and mathemata. A direct synthetical proposition based on conceptions is a dogma. A proposition of the same kind, based on the construction of conceptions, is a mathema. Analytical judgments do not teach us any more about an object than what was contained in the conception we had of it because they do not extend our cognition beyond our conception of an object. They merely elucidate the conception. They cannot, therefore, be with propriety termed dogmas. Of the two kinds of a priori synthetical propositions above mentioned, only those which are employed in philosophy can, according to the general mode of speech, bear this name. Those of arithmetic or geometry would not be rightly so denominated. Thus the customary mode of speaking confirms the explanation given above, and the conclusion arrived at, that only those judgments which are based upon conceptions, not on the construction of conceptions, can be termed dogmatical. 
thus pure reason in the sphere of speculation does not contain a single direct synthetical judgment based upon conceptions by means of ideas it is as we have shown incapable of producing synthetical judgments which are objectively valid by means of the conceptions of the understanding it establishes certain indubitable principles not however directly on the basis of conceptions but only indirectly by means of the relation of these conceptions to something of a purely contingent nature namely possible experience when experience is presupposed these principles are apodectically certain but in themselves and directly they cannot even be cognized a priori thus the given conceptions of cause and event will not be sufficient for the demonstration of the proposition every event has a cause for this reason it is not a dogma although from another point of view that of experience it is capable of being proved to demonstration the proper term for such a proposition is principle and not theorem although it does require to be proved because it possesses the remarkable peculiarity of being the condition of the possibility of its own ground of proof that is experience and of forming a necessary presupposition in all empirical observation if then in the speculative sphere of pure reason no dogmata are to be found all dogmatical methods whether borrowed from mathematics or invented by philosophical thinkers are alike inappropriate and inefficient they only serve to conceal errors and fallacies and to deceive philosophy whose duty it is to see that reason pursues a safe and straight path a philosophical method may however be systematical for our reason is subjectively considered itself a system and in the sphere of mere conceptions a system of investigation according to principles of unity the material being supplied by experience alone but this is not the proper place for discussing the peculiar method of transcendental philosophy as our present task is simply to examine whether our faculties are capable of erecting an edifice on the basis of pure reason and how far they may proceed with the materials at their command End of the discipline of pure reason in the sphere of dogmatism